Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such and Shannon Doherty, and together we'll try to answer the question, how do you solve a problem like mathematics subject leadership? But first, Shannon, what's you reading for? So I have recently been sent Chris McGrain and Martin McCourt's Mathematical Tasks, The Bridge Between Teaching and Learning. And so I started it. I think I'm a bit late to the party because it came out before Christmas. Um, But I'm very interested in the craft of task design, something I really want my teachers to think more carefully about instead of just relying on what the scheme says or what a worksheet says. Um, So I've been reading it in the hope of kind of disseminating it to staff once I've finished. What have you been reading, Chris? I'd like to say I've been reading a really hefty book, but I haven't. (laughs) Um, I returned to a paper that I first encountered a long time ago, and I think probably maybe didn't understand as well as I should have done at the time, but it's a paper called Those Who Understand uh, Knowledge Growth in Teaching by Lee Shulman, 1986. Really fascinating paper. Most people will know it from the fact that it seems to be the origin of the phrase, or at least it's the origin, as far as I can tell, of pedagogical content knowledge contrasted with general pedagogy and subject knowledge. And it takes a kind of historical view of looking at initial teacher training to begin with. It looks at the history of um, teaching and how that relates to academic fields. But crucially, what it does is it talks about Um, a different way of looking at teacher training related to particular subjects, be they maths or history or whatever, and ways that we can focus on pedagogical content knowledge. In particular, it talks about the idea of effectively a case study, for want of a better phrase, approach to um, professional development, whereby rather than say looking, saying, okay, this week we're going to be looking at this wide area, it literally takes a small aspect For example, this week we're going to be looking at how to teach equivalent fractions in Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. And rather than trying to seek something bigger immediately to allow these incremental bits of understanding to develop over the longer term, it's it's a fascinating paper. I'd highly recommend that even if you've read it before, go back to it because it's a goodie. Great choices. And I think Atoll on Math Chat Live a couple of weeks ago asked about CPD or someone wrote in and asked about it. And I think we must have been talking about this idea at the same time that you were reading that paper, because um, I remember talking about how you've got the generic and you've got the very specific. And it sounds like that that our conversation influenced what I was saying in that uh, in that chat. And then I read um, I read Chris's book, um, Mathematical Tasks. I suppose it would have been around Christmas time. Um, and yeah, I think it's really, really good. I think there are, there are a lot of secondary specific examples, but the actual principles underneath it are, are fantastic. And me personally this week, I've been reading a book called Stepping Into Senior Leadership. And that's by John Tate. And, and I've got colleagues who are talking to me about making the jump from classroom teacher or from middle leader into senior leadership. And actually, I think um, there's quite a lot in this book that can help you think about the, you know, and I think it ties nicely into this conversation that we're going to have tonight. Um, Thinking about what needs to be in place 
sort of at the very early stage and then as you move into um that more senior role um, and i think there's a lot of useful advice in it and um, yeah it seems to be you know i've managed to read a chapter every 10 minutes in the morning so i think yeah it, a lot of value there yeah one worth one more checking out if you're feel like you're ready to make that jump which i know we'll get to in a bit that's on my list to read actually so i'll definitely um order that one so on to the fun stuff how do you know you're ready to be a maths coordinator what are the kinds of skills and knowledge you think you should have to bring to the role i think there's lots of bits and pieces that, that i'll inevitably mention but fundamentally it comes down to are you interested in the teaching of mathematics everything i think has to be subordinated to that one particular thing if you're not particularly interested in the teaching of mathematics then it really isn't the role for you i think you also need to and, it, and this is obviously related to the first thing i think you need to have enough knowledge of teaching mathematics or at least the desire to develop that knowledge in a fairly short order um, to make sure that you can be helpful to the teachers that you're working with it's all well and good for you to make that step up into leadership because you feel it's the next step in your career but if you're not able to support the teachers or you're not willing to learn about mathematics teaching so that you can support teachers in your school with mathematics teaching then uh, yeah, avoid it find another way to progress your career you need to have enough time and perhaps the mental space for want of a better phrase to commit to it if you're already feeling like you're drowning under a sea of paperwork in the school that you're working in or you're barely keeping your head above water do think whether any form of subject leadership particularly a core subject like mathematics is right for you i'd say that you have to have a grasp of the national curriculum and the curriculum for your school from reception all the way up to year six and ideally a little bit beyond and I guess the last thing I'd mention is that your view of leadership, what you want to get from it has to align to some extent with the school. I remember at a school that I've previously worked at where a maths coordinator or maths leader was put into place who saw it as a next step in their career. And I think was really keen to support teachers with their mathematical understanding. But when push came to shove, what the school really wanted was someone to do book scrutinies and to make sure that everyone had a login. And that was about as far as they wanted them to go. And it was as much as that's where they wanted them to dedicate their, their time, particularly making sure the books looked pretty for Ofsted. If your view of leadership and what you want to achieve from it doesn't align with what your what leadership in this in a particular subject looks like in the school you work in then perhaps think twice i know that's a lot of stuff there but fundamentally it all comes back to this core of be interested in mathematics i think the truthful answer is usually you don't know and i usually don't have a choice you know <laughs> the bigger the bigger the school you know the more structured such movements will be but I think sometimes if you're in a one form entry school, it will be a case of, you know, all hands on deck. And so, you know, because people often talk about when, when are we ready to make that, that jump? I think the first thing, like you said, we need to be confident in our teaching and mathematics. And, you know, I'm not going to assign a value judgment. You know, you don't have to be an outstanding teacher in mathematics, but just like you said, so confident enough that you can divert mental attention 
to the practice of your colleagues and of a subject um, in general. Um, because I think, like you said, if you're thinking about your own teaching um, in equal measure to the teaching of others, I, I, I find it hard to believe that there would be enough of you to go around. Um, I think because of the high stakes nature of mathematics, um, you know, we, unfortunately, we're in this situation where it can be make or break for schools. Um, I think experience of leading another subject and, you know, getting a feel for what sort of behaviors, what sort of, um, you know, decisions are necessary before you're, you're in this, you know, high stakes scenario. So I think, um, you know, my second year of teaching, I led RE for a year. And then once I realized that subject leadership was something that I was interested in, then I sort of made the move to mathematics. Um, and, I, and I was grateful for that. The fact that I'd organized, you know, like the big Christian holidays and, and had experience of working with other people while still quite young in, in the job. And um, yeah, so I, I would recommend where possible, um, you know, have, have that experience um, in, in a lower stakes environment. You know, every subject is important. Um, but I do think the reality we exist in, certainly in England, the, uh, the stakes aren't evenly divided amongst them. I just want to pause there to drink in the mental image of you organizing the key stage one nativity, Kieran. <laughs> just makes me very happy to imagine that. Yeah, they, they, they moved me out of RE pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and then I think probably most importantly is you need knowledge of where to go to for advice. You know, whether that be people, whether that be institutions or whether that be, you know, somewhere online. And, you know, if because we never have all the answers, but if we can find them relatively easily, then I think our, our life is a whole lot easier as subject leader because we can we, we can send a quick email or text message to someone who knows more than we do. You know, surround yourself with, you know, people who know more than you and um, you know that's that's the mantra i always try to live to um, and i think things become a whole lot easier and a whole lot more rewarding too you're so right that the the interest in maths and a love of maths is completely the the most important thing if you don't love it and you're not fascinated by it i don't think you should be leading it and i think you need to have uh, an interest in developing your colleagues and supporting your colleagues because there will be plenty of opportunities for you to do that and if to be honest if you're not willing to sacrifice a bit of your time because there isn't enough time during the school day and you have, presumably will have your own class to teach but if you're not willing to sacrifice a bit of your time after school or at lunch or before to have these conversations to sit and you know talk through planning to dissect a lesson and work out where it might have gone wrong then it's probably not for you and one thing I would say is you need to be willing to have some resistance from staff you need to be strong enough in what you're saying to be ready for the pushback because there is always going to be pushback and I think especially if you're somebody young who's trying to rise through the ranks quite quickly talking to more experienced teachers older teachers who might not like your newfangled way, 
you need to be ready to deal with that and I think that can be quite a tough part of the job that maybe if you're if you haven't led a subject before or you haven't um, been teaching particularly long could be quite difficult just on a aside from what you said there we've been discussing this idea of that you need to kind of love mathematics or love teaching mathematics at least there is also an extent to which I think it is possible to grow to love a subject and to love uh, teaching a subject hang in there and uh, perhaps dive into a few books or dive into a few bits of CPD here and there there's a very good chance that you will grow to um, to, to love it it is a fantastic subject I guess from there it kind of flows quite naturally into the next question what do you need to do so assuming you have become maths coordinator either you've sought out the job or it's something that's been thrust upon you what do you need to do when you first become maths coordinator i think first place you start is with an image of your ideal you know so in your head you know what you want or hope that mathematics can look like, you know, what sort of offering are your pupils getting um, when they travel through your school? And so you have this ideal and then you spend time getting a feel for how maths really is. And sometimes the distance might not be that far. And sometimes, you know, it, they might be worlds apart, but I think you have your ideal you spend time in classes, you spend time with teachers, you know, you spend, uh, you know, as much time as is possible, because I know that it's not, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have time out or time out at important times in the day. But I think being creative with the time we do have out, you know, say, say you could say to a colleague, you know, would you mind teaching maths in the afternoon, you know, because most teachers are quite flexible like that, you know, and if you go in with uh, very much, you know, the attitude of I'm there to support rather than I'm there to grade, then I think there's a greater likelihood that you'll get buy-in. You know, for instance, one thing you and I talk about, Chris, all the time is we don't write notes when we're in other teachers' classes. You know, we will do, you know, outside so that we can remember when we're having conversations with them. But the act of writing, you know, can be quite off-putting because they're all, you know, what, what, what's, he, what's he writing about my lesson, you know? And I think the further we're removed from the accountability process, I think the, the, the easier it is to have an impact. Um, so we get a feel for maths how it is, and then we sketch, you know, even mentally how we get from A to B, you know, from reality to our ideal state. And I don't think we ever get there. You know, we all, you know, we always want to improve. We always find things that we could tweak. Um, but we've got this general idea. And when our teachers are operating on that general level and the things we're focusing on are really interesting cognitively challenging and you know niche so to speak and um, then it can be really rewarding because you know that you've got this at its heart a really high quality provision for your pupils um, and then again similar to before i think surround yourself with people who are smarter than you you know and it's people who know more than you so that you can draw on them over time and um, but that's what i would do um if i were to start a role as a as a maths coordinator I completely agree with the have your ideal set up kind of mentally sketched and you know like you said you you need to be prepared for that it, it may not come to fruition and certainly probably won't come to fruition 
as quickly as you'd like. Schools have other priorities. So I think my first kind of step is to, and it, this applies whether you are new to a school or whether you are just stepping up within your own school, but you need to just assess the situation. You need to sit back and just watch and observe, go into lessons, like you said, in a supportive manner. It's like a, a fact-finding mission rather than you're trying to find actions and targets. You just need to get a lay of the land and see what maths looks like. You can't go in kind of gung-ho and trying to make big moves straight away. I remember when I started at my school uh, and I started as maths lead, I had Ofsted in the summer term when I started it in January. And Ofsted sort of said... Um, well, what have you done? What have you done since you've been maths lead? What, what, what have you done with the data? How, how are you using the data? And I was like, well, I started as maths lead at Easter and you, you're here in the summer term. I am just getting the lay of the land. I will do this. This is my goal, but it would be completely irresponsible in the summer term to go, we're changing what we're doing. We're not using this scheme anymore. Get rid of those textbooks because that's completely mad so you just need to get used to the fact that you can't just go in and change things now that's not to say if there's some terrible terrible practice going on that you don't make slight changes there are going to be things that you can change you can suggest that people teach times tables five minutes every day or number bonds for five minutes every day and then they can see the results of that very quickly but the big changes you have to kind of hold off for I think um another thing I would say to do is to find the good in the situation even in kind of quite dire situations there will be some element of good it might be that you stumble upon like a, a wealth of concrete resources in a cupboard down a dark corridor it could be that you have some really enthusiastic staff who can be your sort of early adopters the ones that will buy into what you say uh, it, you might end up digging around on the kind of share drive and find a scheme of work tucked away somewhere you don't know I think you just need to look for the good don't go into it thinking this is all going to be awful I'm going to have to make so many changes another thing I'd say is don't forget about EYFS I think it's very easy to forget that reception and nursery exist and I think there's so much good down there and we need to remember that there is a reason that it's called the early years foundation stage and that they lay the foundations for what we then do. So you need to make sure that they are doing, you need to make sure you know what they are doing and you need to make sure that they kind of buy into what you're saying. The th one of the things that made the biggest difference to my competency as a maths lead was learning about what happened in early years. You know, when the, the year I learned about subitizing and the principles of counting, the game changed completely for me. You know, I suddenly had this wider picture and this deeper knowledge of why all the things that were happening in Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 were happening and where we could, um, you know, where, where we could change our practice or, or where we could learn from our colleagues, you know, in, in the early years. And yes, I think that that's a superb point um, because I could feel in myself a much better understanding of what I was up to because I understood that picture so much better. Yeah, so great, great point, Shannon. It's one of those things that 
everyone says, oh, if you're having a bad day, go down to reception for five minutes because it's so lovely in there. And it really is. But you need to go down there and, and really get get to see what they're doing. And you're so right. I Once I'd had my eyes opened to sabotizing, supertizing, whatever you want to call it, and, and the kind of uh, principles of counting, I just suddenly went, oh, I, now I understand why these children are having these issues. And now I understand why this leads to that. To my shame, I probably spent the first year of being a maths lead without understanding in the slightest the importance of spatial awareness and the way that that develops in EYFS and how that is uh, predictive of later maths attainment and why. I couldn't agree more with the idea that you just have to learn that. I guess what I'd add then to what you've said so far about what you need to do when you first become a maths coordinator really just builds on what you've said about this idea that effectively at first it really is about learning and observation and that can mean lots of different things it can mean working out which teachers have pretty good subject knowledge and which don't which teachers are confident and which are struggling for confidence it can mean getting a really good grasp of your entire curriculum deciding whether the monumental change of actually changing your maths curriculum is something that the school needs to consider, that that's something that takes, yeah, requires a lot of thought. You need to understand assessment. Like, how is it done at your school? Again, this can be before you even consider making changes in this area or whether changes need to be made. You need to understand, well, how do we assess mathematics? Do we use um, end of year written assessments? Do we use currently, do we have any metrics against which we keep an eye on key areas of arithmetic, etc. What happens with struggling children in your school? Systematically across your school, if a child is struggling with mathematics, how are they supported? What interventions, if any, are currently in place? Uh, and if those interventions take place, when do they take place? Who's running them? What kind of training have they had? Again, this isn't you changing anything. It's just you getting a feel for what's going on. I, I think this process of really getting to grips with what's going on can easily take, depending on how much time you're given as a maths coordinator, can easily take months. So don't be afraid to not go in all guns blazing when you first become a leader. I guess at the end of all of that process, the key thing is then to prioritise. Find one thing that you think is most important to change if that if something does indeed need changing or one area that needs developing and and uh, take it from there if anyone's thinking where do i go to find out more about early years i think you could do a lot worse than spend a few hours on the learning trajectories website i directed a special school teacher from twitter there recently and she was absolutely floored by how amazing it is if you haven't been on there just spend some time. It's brilliant. For those teachers who are not sure, or those people listening who think, oh, shall I have a look at that? Just to give you a flavour of it. Effectively, there are what look like ladders for um, a variety of mathematical areas of understanding, be it supertizing, spatial awareness, counting, etc. And for each of these levels, um, there are videos, brief little videos that show literally a, a, an adult and a child working together to, it's kind of showing you what this looks like in practice. When a child can do this, what does it look like? As well as providing um, activities and other bits and pieces to help you actually get them to reach that point. Clements and Sarama, the 
researchers and educators who have put this together and have done a great deal of research uh, into the area of early mathematics would be the first to say that the trajectories are, while there's a great deal of truth to them, it doesn't necessarily mean that children will progress through them in a particularly predictable fashion, but they are there as stepping stones to give you an, an idea of how children are likely to progress in all areas. It, it really is a brilliant website. And, and of course, it's totally free. So yeah, highly recommended. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed watching my six and nearly four-year-old go through it at different rates, you know, and all of a sudden, one of them will be, you know, four or five steps on than they were the last time we were doing some sort of mathematical activity together. You know, it's fascinating. You know, you're absolutely right. It, it's a, a rough estimate, but that's all, that's all it can ever be, you know, because everyone's slightly different. I think before we move on to the next question, I'm really interested, Chris, in your point, which I think sort of rounded off the advice quite well. You talked about prioritization. What is, you know, I suppose this is to both of you, what are your, what are you thinking about whenever you're prioritizing actions to take? It goes without saying that this is really school specific. I think it's hard not to speak just in generalities for that reason, but really it's, it's the biggest hole in the boat. It's the, it's the, it's the, the, the biggest problem. It's the thing that you look at and think that's going to have the largest impact on outcomes for children over the longer term. Now, naturally, that's how well you are able to diagnose that will depend on your subject knowledge. And it might be the case that you're a maths lead and two or three years down the line, you look back and think, oh, bum, I really should have prioritized um, some of the learning that goes on in year one, or I should have prioritized making sure the teachers understand supertizing or actually making sure that teachers were au fait with um, different kinds of representations and making sure that's embedded across the curriculum might be the, the thing you wished you had prioritized. But it really is important for you to try and get a lay of the land. Again, tr as you were talking about, Kieran, discuss with others based on what you've seen, what you think the largest priority is. It might be the case that you go to someone more experienced within your school or elsewhere and say, I see these five things in my school where would you begin and why? And it might be the case that different people justify where to begin in different places, but at least then you get an understanding of the, the reasoning behind it. In short, what is the thing where you can have the greatest impact on long-term outcomes the quickest? Yeah, I would uh, be inclined to agree. You need to find the thing that is going to have a big impact and not even just quickly, just the thing that's going to have a big impact for those students you have in your school, whether they're in year one and it will see them right through to year six or something that will have an impact on those year sixes for the brief time you've got them. And I do think the, the temptation to go for quick wins over the big chunky kind of meteor problem is an, an issue, but I do think there are some quick wins that can run alongside quite nicely things that don't take an awful lot of training things that don't take an awful lot of time things that can be implemented and done quite I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of an example but like I said earlier something along the lines of saying to teachers do you know what fluency is pants here our children have no recall of, of any facts 
So for the for every day, you're going to do five five minutes of whatever it is, number bonds, times tables, doubles, halves, that kind of thing. And I think that, you know, you can delve into the why and the importance of it at a later date, but saying to people, you are going to do this, it will have an impact. That's a quick win for me, something that can be implemented quite fast and then teachers can just crack on with it while you're tackling a bigger issue, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that makes total sense. I mean, in particular, what you say about the idea of things being able to run alongside, because when it comes to prioritizing, and, and like it was tempting for me to say, and I did effectively say, like, you know, pick one thing, but really, it's pick one thing for your perhaps for your teachers to be dealing with. Alongside that, you might be getting on with something else in the background, or like you say, there might be just one thing that you can implement quite quickly that isn't really going to take up a great deal of mental space for your teachers but it's, it's just something that you can fix quite quickly even if it isn't necessarily going to have the, the biggest impact be it something that just isn't joined up that you can sort in you know a fairly brief period of time like if for example you notice that the written methods that are being taught in years four five and six don't align with the way that written particular written methods are being introduced in year three and that might be something that you could just quickly sort. You know, that's something that isn't going to take up a lot of mental space. It doesn't even necessarily involve all of the teachers in the school. So, yeah, there, I, I think you've um, added necessary nuance to the point I made there, which is that, it, yeah, as well as kind of thinking what's the biggest problem, there are other things that you can be doing alongside that, that you know, that might not take up much uh, mental space for teachers. I think there are certain things that can buy us breathing space. But I also like the idea that you've got this multi-layered priority system. Um, and I was just thinking about it there now. Um, and so what I mean is that you will have your whole school, you know, this is something we'd like to move towards. But equally, if you're supporting individual teachers, then you're going to have more than one thing, you know, that you're going to focus with. And, and we'll get to that in the next question. Um, so I, I like that, that you've got big picture and then individualized pictures but in terms of breathing space doing some things well will guarantee a minimum sort of standard of education you know like really strong modeling or explanation or you know you and i chris talked about and um, the fact that problem solving is happening and all children are allowed access to it you know and um, you know, just that guarantee that that is the case can make a big difference. And, and then I, yeah, so whenever I'm prioritizing, I'm thinking about what's important, big picture, but equally, which teachers and what are their development points as well. And yeah, no, I just thought it was really interesting because you mentioned, um, and I thought it rounded off that, that bit quite well. And so I suppose the next question is, Shannon, how, how do you support teachers who are struggling to teach the subject adequately? Well, this is quite a chunky one for me, I think. Um, I would say, and this is a huge kind of sweeping statement, so tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, but I would say uh, the majority of the time when a teacher is struggling to teach maths adequately, it's a subject knowledge issue. It's a confidence issue with the fact that they, and often teachers don't, they, they know that they don't know. And so their confidence is already kind of shaken. And so for me, uh, subject knowledge is a huge thing. 
I talk about it constantly at school and we put lots of trainings on as a trust and sort of really encourage people to go to it and if we can get them done during the day even better so they're not giving up their own time I and because of subject knowledge being an issue it's likely that planning is then an issue do they understand what they're teaching is it broken down properly I know you know schools there'll be kind of unionized people who are like you can't force people to use a planning format no you can't and you know and I'm not suggesting anyone should have to hand in planning every Friday before three o'clock and all of that nonsense from years ago but I'm sorry and I'm sorry to those of you who if it's not years ago I appreciate that there are some people still in that situation which is deeply upsetting for me but if you know that planning is probably an issue can you look at their plans with them can you talk through what steps they went through co-planning is a huge thing for me and I think because math leads generally are in class I would say even if it's just part-time and they're sort of, you know, out of class for a little bit, they've got their own class, they've got their own things to do. And getting into planning sessions is very difficult because generally PPA cover is sorted and then who else is going to cover if the math leads out. But getting into PPA is a, is a huge thing. Actually looking at someone's process and then talking them through your process and kind of doing that kind of modelling. Because I think to plan effectively you need to have seen good planning take place. And I think, you know, um, I think you touched on it in the early career teacher episode where you said, you know, you need to be with someone who's more experienced when you're in NQT. You need to watch them work. You need to understand what steps they take. It's going to take you longer because you're new, but you need to see what it looks like. You need to see good practice. And I think getting into planning sessions having that kind of high quality rich conversation with them is helpful getting into lessons seeing where they're going wrong seeing you know where they falter modeling lessons team teaching with them sort of planning together modeling it for them planning together then them modeling it for you just lots of collaboration lots of communication and with that i think i'm going to use the phrase incremental coaching and it's something my friend Emma talks about all the time. She's a big coaching fanatic. I have never been in a school that does coaching, but it's something I'm interested in reading about. But I think those sort of giving someone small steps to work on, taking time to evaluate and reflect on them and kind of having the approach of, well, we're going to fix this small thing and work on it for a little bit. And then when you've got that, we're going to pick another small thing that we can do alongside that and then keep picking these small things rather than going, you're doing a really bad job. You need to do this, 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 and this. I worked with an NQT, gosh, four or five years ago. And in her first ever NQT observation, she was given a list of 20 things that were wrong. And they said, when you get your next observation, we want these 20 things sorted. And I went back and said, no, this is not right. And I said to her, you need to go back and say, this is far too much. Pick one. This is your first time ever teaching. Pick one thing. So I think not going in, like you said earlier on, Chris, all guns blazing, it can be very tempting, but don't. Take a step back. Pick small things to fix. And subject knowledge, subject knowledge, subject knowledge. 
uh, you've returned the favor that I obviously, I think I did to an extent earlier in that you've taken all of the interesting things I was, oh, like, I hope interesting things I was going to say. Yeah, team teaching. If, you, if you've if you got the opportunity of in, the, in a one form entry school or in where you've got a full timetable, it can be really difficult to get the chance to do that. But if, if time allows, if you can get that time to support teachers, then modeling teaching, covering another teacher's lesson so they can go and observe someone else or even better than that they just watch you teach the lesson is they are great ways to support teachers I agree that planning meetings are a massive thing and not being afraid to as massly to say you know what we are going to plan together as such for a week or two but in week one I'm just going to plan for you it's not going to be perfect just I'm just going to talk you through what I did and then next week we'll do the same and then the week after we'll kind of plan one together and then the week after that you'll plan one and maybe I'll give you some pointers and so you have that slow release of responsibility I think that can be supportive thinking about subject knowledge though it just reminded me of a staff meeting I was in a few years ago which was um, we, we all sat together in a one of the classrooms and we got out a the most recent year six SATS paper. And as a whole staff, we kind of picked it apart and we looked at it and we had to go answering the most tricky questions. And effectively the whole room, apart from a few year six and five teachers just openly and understandably admitted that they just had no idea how to answer, never mind teach certain aspects of the paper. And I thought, wow, this is gonna be a really powerful bit of CPD because we're gonna look at all this stuff within the paper that we don't quite understand and then presumably next week or at some point down the line we'll then look at these bits and pieces or at least the most high priority stuff and we'll learn how to teach them we'll learn we'll maybe just be taught a lesson and that will be part of our professional development what actually happened is just we all sat around and said oh yeah lots of people here can't do this and then that was it <laughs> and it just stopped and that was the end of the meeting and we just carried on with our lives I do think the first half of that, the idea of uh, acquainting teachers with the, the scope of a year six SATS paper and then saying, okay, so which bits are you less confident with? Which bits are you, would you worry, be worried about teaching? And then using that as a jumping off point for CPD related to um, subject knowledge that you're going to do later can be, can be quite beneficial. I think just the last thing to mention is that it may well be the case that a teacher says to you, I'm really struggling with my maths teaching and you go into support, uh, maybe just to give a few pointers or a single pointer. And what you realize when you're in there is that actually it isn't the subject knowledge, or maybe it is the subject knowledge, but at heart, the biggest thing that they are struggling with may, might be something related to just generic pedagogy. It might be behavior management. It might be their questioning. It might be the the clarity of their explanation, which obviously ties in with subject knowledge, but it might not uh, relate to that necessarily. And I'd say as a maths lead, don't be afraid to support teachers with stuff that actually isn't immediately related to mathematics, that is just generic pedagogy. It can be the case that sometimes you just can step in and support a teacher. It just so happens that you've seen that in their maths lessons. So I think the point about subject knowledge is, is really important. It's a really good one. And like, well, I suppose best part of 10 years ago, I was going out and visiting other schools and, you know, the SLE role, the specialist leader of education. Um, and 
I wrote Tackling Misconceptions off the back of lots of the same conversation happening time and time again about those fundamental things we can do as teachers to make sure that misconceptions aren't passed on. Um, and and that's, that's sort of the way I approach both my books is, you know, what conversations am I having with people? And um, so I do think that it is quite common and quite um, reasonable to expect that there is a, a disparity between the subject knowledge that is necessary, you know, for the whole education system to operate on a really high level and, and where we exist right now and where we have existed for what appears to be quite, quite a while. And so I think that's really important. Um, and I also think that in describing what you would do to help struggling teachers, you've, you've essentially described my role. Um, and so that's led me to think about my response a little bit um, a little bit more, because obviously I'm very fortunate that I have two things to focus on, the quality of teaching and learning mathematics across my schools and community engagement with maths. Um, and so that means that I can afford to do all the things that you guys describe. And I think if you're in a school where maths is a strength, maths is done really well, um, then supporting teachers who are struggling to teach you know, the subject adequately is different because you have lots of really strong models of what that might look like. And so the answer might be some time with the subject leader, time in lots of people's classes, getting a feel for what maths is like at the school, and then sort of going on bit by bit. Because, you know, when you've got, you know, such strong sort of colleagues around you, then you're almost feeding into the way that maths is taught, if that makes sense. But I think if you have a need to improve the quality of maths education in your school, and you're really serious about it, then I do think you need to have a similar model to the one that my schools um, have utilized for the last couple of years. Um, because if a maths lead is charged with improving the quality of teaching, say across a two form entry school, but they're also teaching four and a half out of five days, then it could take decades, you know, to really make an impact, if, if at all. You know, whereas if you have someone who is able to spend a concerted amount of time with colleagues, focusing solely on their practice, then you have a really, you know, a much greater chance of effecting change. You know, for instance, the most intensive support I provide people with is a full term teaching with them every day. And like you say, I will start off with 100%. I will plan, I will teach, and I will explain every decision I'm making. So I, during the planning session, I'll say, okay, we're going to teach this. I would do this because of X, Y, and Z. And then we go into the lesson and I would explain why I was doing certain things, what pedagogical decisions I was making and what information I could get from the pupils. You know, say we're using many whiteboards. I would be explaining I've learned this, so my next decision is this. And then gradually over the six or seven weeks, responsibility would, as you say, phase to the other teacher. You know, So halfway through the term, it's 50-50. And then depending on how they respond, you'll normally find quite quickly they will take on most of the responsibility. And then you can literally be, you know, 
even though we're both in the lesson together, we could be having a conversation about the decisions we're making. You know, what have you learned now? Oh, I can see that this is this is quite a common error that's been made. I'm going to address that. Um, and I think if you have a real need, you know, then that's the direction I think schools should go. And um, how we do that, you know, I think it's easier in multi-category trusts because of the groups of schools and the shared funding and things. But equally, it might be about talking to um, you know, neighbor schools or schools that have a similar um, a similar pressing need and then taking it from there. You know, I don't think it's a pipe dream because I think from what I know of the costs, I think it is within the realm of possibility for three or four schools to get together and to share, even if they're not joined by a multi-academy trust. And I think if we have teachers who are struggling, that's the best way to effect change, you know. And then over time, your your support accounts for the differing levels that the teachers are operating on. You know, you'll have really experienced teachers who need very little more than a conversation or some pointers, uh, you know, direction towards some reading. And then you can focus on your new teachers and those teachers who are at the very start of their careers. And so I don't know. I feel I feel like it's not pie in the sky, but I apologize if, if it is. And yeah, but that, that, that's what I think in terms of supporting those teachers who are struggling. And it's, it's exactly what you guys say. It's getting in there as much as possible. And, you know, a lot of the stuff is the same with what we do with our pupils. We model, we face responsibility. We give in the moment feedback where appropriate. And then over time, we see our colleagues improving, you know, piece by piece. I think your role sounds like an absolute dream, Kieran. And it's obviously, it's not pie in the sky. It's not a pipe dream because you're doing it. But I think a big part of this is head teachers and senior leaders getting the importance of it and realizing that this is going to be probably the quickest and easiest way for improvements to happen because it, it isn't do it isn't as doable if you've just got one maths lead in a school trying to support colleagues in every year group say or you've got uh, maybe you've got a maths lead in key stage two and a maths lead in key stage one in EYFS if you're in a particularly big school and they're still trying to support colleagues all over the place so I think it, part of it is head teacher buy-in there and understanding the importance of it. I don't, I don't think it's pie in the sky either. I think there are certain mechanisms that would need to be in place. I mean, the, the nature of a multi-academy trust is that let's say you've got one school that is really struggling with mathematics. They don't mind, for example, someone like you spending more time with that school within a trust, even if effectively the resources are pooled across those four schools to allow that to happen. Whereas, let's say it was a more informal, well, not, not an informal arrangement, but a, an arrangement where four schools had said, you know what, we're going to buy in a specialist maths teacher to support across our four schools. And then you found out that one of the schools needed a great deal of support, or two of them did, and one of them was actually in pretty good shape. You ended up with almost a, 
um, funding race to the bottom because those schools that need the most support are going to be the ones that are most likely to contribute and those that recognize they don't need so much support are the ones that can kind of hold back so I, th I don't think it's pie in the sky at all it would just require some kind of model in which um, schools were either forced which tends to happen with the whole multi-academy trust model or um, incentivized to work together as a group of schools and to be able to say oh no it makes sense for you to prioritize that school down the road at the moment our maths is in a pretty good is in pretty good shape and they're really struggling so we get that we don't mind contributing resources that aren't necessarily going to have an impact with us so immediately i guess that ties into a bit of a bugbear of mine which is the fact that we do currently seem to exist within a system where for one reason or another there is an underlying sense of competition between schools rather than that inherent sense of cooperation and that's not the fault of staff that's systemic issues relating to league tables but that's a whole other podcast i imagine yeah re really good points i think then perhaps the focus of my message should shift slightly towards schools making as much time as is physically possible for those kind of behaviors and those kind of situations to unfold, you know, where the, the subject leader is given, you know, for instance, the same amount of release that an assistant head might have, you know, assistant heads, you know, in my experience, normally have half day teaching commitment. You know, what if that teaching commitment was switched around so that they were available when teachers were teaching maths? Um, yeah, because I, I understand, you know, 100% that the realities and the practicalities might not align so easily. Um, but I do think it's possible. But I think, yeah, probably the fundamental message is that the more time we make for our subject leads and the more time we find for ourselves as subject leads, then the more, the more impactful we can be. So we've talked about how you know you're ready to be a maths coordinator and what you need to do and how you support teachers something i feel like isn't given much time and potentially new subject leaders really need help with is in terms of outcomes and assessment what does a math coordinator need to know and why i think what maths coordinators need to know has somewhat changed over the past few years because of the changes to Ofsted. There was a time four or five years ago, as I'm sure you're both aware, where you needed to know how what percentage of your pupil premium boys in year four who had blonde hair and were left-handed were age-related expectations. It isn't like that to, uh, to a great extent anymore, but that's not to say that there isn't a major value in knowing where where year groups and classes and the school is at in terms of outcomes so you obviously it makes sense to be thoroughly aware of your year two and year six outcomes and though this is obviously much more informal discussions with teachers in EYFS about um, different groups of children and where they're at with um, beyond the prime areas into the specific areas what strengths and weaknesses they're seeing coming through so yeah, a good grasp of historical outcomes for year two and year six. I think it's worth knowing 
what percentage of children are roughly age-related expectations from year group to year group and from class to class for such obvious things as being able to make recommendations about who teaches who. We've said before that our most struggling pupils ideally would be matched up with the teachers who are most experienced um, and who are most capable in teaching mathematics. And you can't really do that unless you have a decent grasp of where um, different year groups and different classes um, are at with their understanding of mathematics relative to your curriculum. You also, of course, it goes without saying, you need to know how you, I mentioned it earlier, how you do assessment at your school. Are there small assessments relating to fundamental bits of arithmetic? Do they run alongside, presumably you'll have some form of standardized assessments. I guess linked to that is also, how do you tell parents about that stuff? Because it's something that always, you know, is a, is a relevant part of parents' evening and is a question that will come up and rightly so. You need to be have an understanding of exactly how are you feeding that back to parents is are, are you keeping track of something equivalent to a, a maths age or are you just talking about age related expectations um, such as they are. So I think there's a few bits and pieces that every subject lead needs to wrap their head around as soon as they get in basically how is it done, what is for want of a better phrase, what is your data, how are parents informed. I guess the last thing is that I'd mention off the, kind of off the top of my head is that if you use summative assessments, and of course you will use summative assessments on some level in your school, what expectations are there about how teachers will then use those, if at all, in a formative sense? Because it's very easy to make big brash statements about how you know formative assessments one thing and summative assessment is another and never the twain shall meet. But actually, there's a lot of the time where you can do a summative assessment with a group of children and come away realizing that, oh, actually, no, I need to reteach that bit of fractions. Um, and teachers knowing what your expectations are related to summative assessments, whether they're expected to look at star assessment or Puma or whatever standardized assessment it is you use and whether they're, whether they're expected to look at those and have that to some extent inform their teaching yeah, teachers need to know what your expectations are related to that. So I think you, you've given a very practical response. So I think anyone who's listening should listen to what you've said, Chris, because my heart says that most assessment as it's, as it's, you know, is in its current incarnation, isn't fit for purpose. Um, and to do the job of math subject properly, I don't think you need to know much at all. Um, that said, to play the game, you need all of those things and knowledge of all of those things that you um, that you've outlined, and um, in particular, a working knowledge of the end of key stage measures and the impact that has on your school. I think within year groups, when you look at your summative assessments, you need to know what type of inferences you can make when you look at them what the likelihood of reliability is, you know, for instance, something like NFER, where it has a massive sample size, you can reasonably confidently say that you've got, you know, a, an idea of what the, the sort of the, the, the general response is across a large set of pupils. Um, but if you use something that you've made yourself, for instance, you know, say I made a test and I gave it to everyone in the school, and that there's, there's going to be a, a massive difference in the in the inferences that can be made. So I think an understanding of 
summative assessment and what it tells us and what its limitations are, I think is really valuable. And that, that, that's not to say we go to the extent where we are statistics experts, but there are, are, are plenty of places where we can get a feel for the kind of information that summative assessment should be given us. I'm thinking, does Daisy Christodoulou talk about this in Making Good Progress? I know Dylan William talks about this kind of thing quite a lot. Those would probably be the two places, or the two people I would go to first. And then, and then sort of your, your understanding will hopefully snowball. Um, yes, but I think there's, there's definitely, you know, my heart is saying there's a distinction to be made between what's actually necessary to do the job and what is necessary to play the game, um, if, if that's fair to say. Just to come back on that bit a little, I don't necessarily think that any of the suggestions I made are particularly game play. So, for example, when I say you really need to get a grasp of an, an individual class and roughly where they're at relative to other classes that you've had historically, I do think there is an ability to use that kind of data to then say, no, this, this class struggles more than previous year groups have had. We've, we've got a really strong maths teacher. Let's see if they can have an impact with them next year. I, I don't think that's necessarily particularly Ofsted related. Um, I think when you, I think you make a really good point about the idea of uh, an assessment that you do yourself that doesn't have that scope for standardization, it's absolutely the case that it would be invalid to take a, an assessment like, like you know, let's say you did a, num a number bonds assessment with every child in the school. It would be wrong to then say, oh, I can use this to judge anything with regards to standards across the country. But you can infer from it, roughly speaking, which classes are weaker or stronger at number bonds if you've done this kind of assessment over a significant period of time. You're absolutely right that you can't really generalize too far from that though there is an extent to which you have to always know the limits of what it is your what, what it is that the information you're getting from assessment is showing you perhaps i have interpreted the question a little differently um than you have you know it definitely wasn't my intention to sort of say you know chris i think that you're you're game playing um, <laughs> but, but but when i know absolutely not but when i Think of this when I hear the word assessment. I'm thinking of multicolored trackers. I'm thinking of, you know, I think tests are probably the most reliable source of information that we have. But what would happen if we didn't do that stuff for a year? Would the children learn any less? Because there are ways that we can find out what they know and what they need to learn next that don't involve, you know, so much manual input of information if that makes sense and um, you know i've seen conversations about question level analysis you know a lot of secondary teachers talking about how useful are they so i think it it's not my intention to sort of shoot across your body um, but possibly i have interpreted that question in a little bit you know maybe perhaps a little bit more emotively based on past experiences than, than you have yourself. And like I say, yours is the infinitely more practical suggestion um, because you're coming from it at an angle of what's important. Um, but I just thought it, the, the conversation needed to address 
the existence of, like I said, multicolored systems that bring little to the table um, and where we could be spent our time on things that are more important. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think there's a there, there has been in the fairly recent past and probably still exists in many schools, a chaotic and completely uh, unnecessary level of um, tracking of assessment. Just to spell out kind of where I would, a sensible level of assessment that and I guess this relates to the question quite directly because in terms of assessment what teachers need to know is what is a sensible level of assessment I guess it's something we can kind of hash out now to an extent I'm I would have no problem with the idea for example of uh, pupils at the end of a year group say so in year two three four five six at the end of the year taking some form of standardized assessment or towards the end of the year even if only to be able to give a relatively unbiased judgment to parents when it comes to parents evening. But beyond that, I think there is some value in being able to say the teacher's instinct and our instinct is that this class is really struggling. Let's, let's put that into it. Let's, let's show that or see whether that's the case based on a standardized assessment. Let's see if this is a class that really does need the support we think we think it needs, or maybe actually it's, it's not that, case at all maybe they've had a supply teacher for a few months and actually they're, they're pretty okay when you get to a um, summative assessment and actually underlying this perceived weakness is actually just behavior in lessons so I, th I think there is still some value there I think that kind of level of assessment I, I wouldn't consider to be particularly burd burdensome either to conduct or to Based on what you said, I'm kind of reluctant to say the word track because there is something inherently um, unpleasant about the phrase tracking data. But what I really mean is just you know, to, to know where, what, how students across a year group or across a class have attained um, towards the end of the year. What do you reckon to that, Kieran? Would uh, end of year assessments be something that you would ditch? I, I, I actually think they have some value. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and like I said, I defer to you on this um, because I'm thinking there's a point to be made an understanding that it would be good for the largest number of people to be aware of, um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but like, and like I said, standardised um, assessments are probably the first way, you know, because they remove the fallibility of humans from the the process as, as much as is possible and yeah so I think it's it's less than I disagree and more than I think there's a conversation to be had around the reasons why we do what we do and um, you know doing that which has the the most reliable inferences available um, for the least amount of physical effort on the on the part of the teachers and and pupils to that extent if you said to me in the average school, do you suspect that there is too much assessment data being generated and tracked? And by that, I mean the average primary school, I'd say we're almost certainly still in a position where in the average school that that is the case. I was just about to jump in Chris and say, I think we, you say this all the time, we're in an echo chamber and we are, you know, on Twitter in kind of edu scene, even though that makes me cringe a little bit. Um, we live in a world where 
we have these leaders and these teachers talking and saying, oh, we don't do this anymore. We don't track this anymore. We don't do data targets or uh, appraisals anymore. And we are probably in far more fortunate positions than I would say a lot of teachers. When I talk to people who I trained with, whose leaders are perhaps not so up to date with things, there is still an awful lot of tracking. There is, you know, objective tracking to within an inch of its life. Everything is data focused. Everything is percentages. And I think, you know, I agree with both of you because I think there shouldn't be that level of tracking. Tracking is a dirty word. I don't think there should be that level of tracking. I do think there should be standardized assessments. And I do think that we can use that information in a formative way. I agree with you, Kieran, that a general understanding of assessment, as in what is it, formative, summative, what do those mean? How do they get used? It needs to happen. Every teacher should have that, particularly subject leaders, particularly core subject leaders. I think that, but I think that the decisions surrounding assessment are far greater than your average maths coordinator. They belong, and they could be involved in those conversations, but they shouldn't be the person making the, those decisions. It needs to be, it needs to come from a collaborative discussion about what's going to be best for your children. And I think, um, I just think perhaps there needs to be a shift away from tracking every tiny objective. And I think you said it earlier on, Chris, tracking the things like um, number bonds being taught and tracking those sorts of things. And I say tracking because that's the only word that comes to mind. But, you know, keeping an eye on those things, those things that we know have a real impact on the, the kind of mathematics attainment of our children, rather than tracking every single statement, which is hell, let's face it. So I think that, you know, your average maths lead needs to understand what assessment is and how we use it, needs to have an overview of their of their school they need to know if you know the children in year two it's a particularly weird cohort that year and you've got loads of children working below or if you've got a class where everyone seems to be on track wonderful you can kind of leave them to tick along you they don't need your best teacher next year like you said earlier chris but i do think this is a bigger discussion than just maths leads it's a an slt discussion and, you know, if there is a math lead out there who is left alone with kind of assessment, that's probably an issue. You've just reminded me of <laughs> past schools where at the front of maths books is a long list of 20 or 30 statements. <laughs> and then alongside every statement, three boxes where you're meant to date to show that the child has evidence in their book or elsewhere that they've met that statement so you end up with yeah and then that information as well as being tracked on a sheet in their books is then tracked on some kind of target tracker style online system just oh yeah I've, i completely forgot that that is likely still the norm for certain schools and yeah that's scary that it is yeah, I, I think that that happens in far more schools than we would think. 
And I think that hopefully there are people listening to this thinking, what, that's not normal. What, what, who can we read about? What can we do? Because, you know, we need to make sure that isn't happening in every school, even things like, um, just like I was talking to somebody earlier on who, this is a kind of off topic anecdote from somebody else, certainly not me, um, was that they were given an appraisal target for the year two class that was more greater depth in maths. And so because of that, and that was from their maths lead. And so because of that, um, they achieved that target, but then the rest of the class missed out on age related because they'd put so much focus onto greater depth. And I think if we focus too much, too much on assessment and our maths leads are put under certain pressures to have these sort of datary targets, and our teachers are put under these pressures, then the kind of beauty of teaching maths goes out the window. And so I think that it is, it's a, like I said earlier, it's a much bigger discussion than just a maths lead. And we need to kind of rein in the tracking and think about what the things, what do we want our children to learn? How do we get there? And then bung a standardized test in just to see if we're accurate. Based on what you've just said, I would chuck in one more thing that is absolutely relevant. You know, if you're going to be a maths lead and you are going to deal with data and assessment, take 30 seconds to Google Goodhart's law, which is the idea that once a measurement becomes a metric, it ceases to to have any value as a measurement, which is obviously what happened in that um, year two class that you mentioned. So... Math subject leadership will definitely be something we return to, if not multiple times. And definitely, Shannon, try to get you involved in all of those conversations. But I think if we finish with a question that we've recently sort of been involved in the response to um, on Twitter, and it's the question says, where can I get some good, brackets, free or cheap, CPD from? I'm not great at practical maths. Where would you go to? I have to say, I think the NCTM spines are some of the best things that are out there. They are super intimidating when you first open them. And they are hefty. And they take a lot of reading and they take kind of reading again. And I think they take talking, you know, you, you need to talk through them with someone. So to this wonderful person on Twitter who wants some free CPD, look at the NCTM spines, pick the year group you're in or a year group that you like or interests you or that you've done a lot, read it, then chat to someone on Twitter, send me a message. We, you know, we need to talk more. I think it's it's great going out and seeking this out, this stuff yourself, but... If you don't have someone to talk about it with, you probably don't see the full kind of picture. And I think you said that earlier on, both of you at some point have said you surround yourself with people who know more than you and you have people who can support you. So I would go and start trying to read those, but I would start slowly and I would um, chat to somebody as you're doing it. In terms of what I would recommend, I think learning trajectories has already come up. It's amazing. 
if I remember correctly, I, I, it just jumped out to me, actually. I've recently read a few articles um, from the, I think it's called the Early Math, Maths or Maths, I think it's American, Early Math Collaborative, Ericsson, something or other. So that's Ericsson Early Math Collaborative. Get past the fact that they call it math and have a little look if there's any articles on there. But actually, the thing that I really want to point out is Gareth Metcalf's IC Maths website, he, I, I spent a weekend, geek that I am, watching him deliver um, lockdown lessons to two children in key, sta uh, key stage two, uh, lower key stage two and upper key stage two. And they are a tour de force of how to get children interested in mathematics, how to develop their reasoning skills, how to engage them in problem solving. So check those out. I suspect that the lockdown videos aren't going to be around forever. So take advantage of that while you can. But I know that there are other great things on his website anyway, that are always available for free. So yeah, definitely give that a look. Yeah, even even just looking, and we've, we've definitely had this conversation before, looking at his IC reason and IC problem solving questions that he's written, you know, because there are so many of them. Um, and so reasonably priced, you know, a school could buy the whole lot for around about 100 quid, I think. Um, and asking yourself, why has he done that? You know, and even if you don't come to the right answer, at least you're thinking about the decision making that someone who's so expert in designing mathematical tasks at the primary level, you know, would, would go through. And um, I think to reiterate what Shannon said, um, you know, just reach out to anybody um, involved with the, the podcast because, you know, we always love talking maths. And I know that I, in the time that I've been doing the podcast, I've sort of let slip the, the maths videos about models and images and stuff go. But if there's anything you really want to see, they don't take that long to, to make, you know, just send, send me a Twitter message or, or a message on YouTube and, and we'll, we'll try and see what we can do. Um, but yeah, but I think you guys are hitting the nail on the head and in particular about the spine materials and not being intimidated by the size and the depth because over time you'll realize that that's the strength of them. You know, they've been really carefully considered and it's a case of finding an, a nice point of ingress and then working piece by piece through it until you've got this understanding of the, the bigger picture that they're trying to explore because they've got a a really clear model of the journey through mathematics, particularly with in relation to the operations and the the laws of arithmetic. And um, yeah, so I think you you can't put a price on that kind of um, resource. Just to add to what Kieran said about reaching out to people, if anyone's interested in particular on things like um, early mathematics, in particular early counting, supertizing, uh, structures of arithmetic. Uh, bar modeling, other bits and pieces like that. I've shared videos with 30 or 40 teachers so far who have dropped me a direct message. Don't be afraid to do the same thing. I can't promise they'll be, in fact, I can promise they won't be of the same high caliber that of Kieran's videos that he's put together. So check out those first and foremost. But if any of the things I've mentioned um, are of interest, yeah, don't be, don't be afraid to drop me a, a direct message because yeah, I'm happy to share. And I would just say, as a fan of you both, both of your videos are wonderful. And anyone listening should absolutely get on Kieran's website, 
DM Chris. They're very good. Yeah, I think I think um, Chris has been, you know, slightly too generous to me because I've seen all you know all of Chris's videos and they're of an exceptionally high quality. So maybe what we need to do is talk about how we can get those available for free to the masses and um, between now and this episode going out. So I think on that note, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Shannon and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. All that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. Next week will be the start of season two and our first guests will be Matt Swain and Tom Gary talking about how they, in their role in the Step Academy Trust, support new and beginning teachers. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.